Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 17th of January. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. Good to be back and good to have you back. Thank you. Um, a bit jet-lagged, but that's all right. Won't do that very often. No. <laughs> okay, in this week's Citizens Report, three weeks to stop cash ban that traps Aussies in banks and Trump needs to talk to Putin and Xi, not neocons, to stop World War III. So first, three weeks to stop cash ban trapping Aussies in banks. Um, three weeks, little, day less than three weeks, Craig, is the 7th of February, um, which is when the Senate that's in committee that's conducting an inquiry to the cash ban will hand down their report. Which I suspect is already written, Ruby. We've been operating on that assumption, frankly. We know there's a, there's a certain formality here, except we'll talk about there's, there's been a, a wrinkle in the, in the agenda mm. because of the hearings that have been held holding. But... Um, if, if Scott Morrison's true to form, what will happen is that's a Friday, they hand that report down. The, 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 uh, the bill will be brought to a vote in the Senate the next week. They'll hope to ram it through the next week. Yep. And I can tell you they, why, one of the reasons to think that is because they would, have, they would have hoped to have ran this bill through in the second week of September last year. Mm. Right? We're the ones that made that impossible um, thanks to the outpouring of the public and the Labor Party responded to that and agreeing to this inquiry that's underway, that's, that's, that's delayed it, but they'll want to stick to their agenda. Um, however, there's, they have to deal with the consequences of the inquiry and we have to make that stick. And we want to show some people, show the viewers some of the good stuff that's come out of the inquiry so far. Um, bear in mind there's going to be a second hearing on the 30th of January, right? Mm. Now, I have some bad news to break, which is that before Christmas, we, we did a, the, the last episode of the CSE report was after the first hearing, and we talked about how well the Labor senator, Alex Gallagher, had done in that hearing. We're going to play a clip from him soon. Um, the bad news is he's just being diagnosed with lung cancer. Mm. And that means he can no longer, he will not participate, he's, he's going to take two months leave at least to get treatment. He will not be participating in this inquiry anymore. That's actually very bad for the sake of this inquiry. Um, I urge people, though, to um, send him an email at senator.gallica at aph.gov.au um, with your condolences and you know, best wishes, etc. He deserves it, and you'll see in the clip why. Uh, because he's just doing his job, he's put a different complexion on this hearing. Right? Robbie, can I just add, we've had a lot of delegations of the supporters of this, uh, of the you know, Citizen Party members and others who are not members going to as delegations to their MPs. Now this is absolutely crucial in this yep. point. At this point in the next two weeks there's not much time but people can still call their MPs, they can still demand a meeting because the MPs, a lot of them are ignorant about what's actually taking place. Exactly. And especially one party, the Labor, Labor party. party. Nothing else matters frankly. There's too many yes men in the coalition, they're going to do what Scott Morrison says. It's the Labor Party that can stop this. And it's the Labor Party that achieved this inquiry and it's and it's their, their Senator Gallica who drew out what I'm about to show you because yeah. what we're going to do is produce a three-minute video. Now, we're not playing that today, but we're going to play some of the content that's going to be in that video from the hearing to prove one thing. And I, we're going to do it in a three-minute video so everyone can share it with members of parliament and make sure they watch it because this video will prove the government has zero evidence for this law. 
Zero evidence, zero real evidence for the need for this law. All they've got is anecdotal evidence. That is, you do not base such a radical law that overturns thousands of years of practice where cash is legal tender, right, on the basis of, you know, anecdotal evidence, a, a, a chat around the back of the pub, mm. right? That's what anecdotal evidence is. So let me play you a clip now of the, 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 the exchange between first Rex Patrick and then Alex Gallagher to the, with the Treasury and ATO from the hearing. Watch this clip and you will see this question of evidence, right? When they ask for it, what the, the fact that the Treasury has no, the ATO has no idea and Treasury can't come up with any. Just watch it. Firstly, uh, you might have heard me asking uh, Austrac and or mentioning with other witnesses, <laughs> I note there was no submission from the tax office, which appears to be, or to me, is quite surprising and uh, gives me the impression that you are not particularly interested in this bill. Uh, Senator Patrick, um, thank you. The, um, it's not obvious to us from the bill, this, uh, the Australian Taxation Office, that we, for example, would be uh, the administrator of legislation that might flow from this bill when it's passed. And uh, we're certainly not the uh, regulator of the uh, financial sector in Australia. We're not a criminal law enforcement agency, and they seem to be too strong elements that come through from aspects of the bill. So in that aspect, uh, we didn't feel we really had an authority to talk about administration of something which we weren't clearly going to be, or perhaps obviously be the administrator. It's not going really to our strengths and uh, left space for the agencies we thought uh, might be more relevant to those aspects of the bill. So that's, that's uh, why we didn't uh, present a, um, a submission for the, the committee. But in, but in some respect, and, and uh, you know, we're trying to deal with the black economy, which inherently, I presume, means collection of greater taxes for consolidated revenue. Or is the purpose of the bill, in your view, to, uh, as was suggested by the Uniting Church, to uh, basically make life more difficult for uh, people who are um, you know, you know, attempting to money launder or so forth, or is the purpose to gain additional revenue? Well, I, I, I defer to my Treasury colleagues about the purpose for the bill, uh, Senator. Okay, but I, you know, I have to consider this legislation on, on, on its merits, uh, and, and that involves trying to understand uh, the benefit that, that flows from this, because I've certainly got people talking to me about the cost, um, not necessarily a financial cost, but, you know, um, uh, constituents making complaints uh, about the, the, the intention. Um, and this, in some sense, goes to where Senator um, Brockman was um, exploring. Uh, the $10,000 number, um, uh, you know, it, uh, I would expect there would be perhaps some uh, analysis or you know, perhaps qualified by um, uncertainties uh, you know, as to... If you put it, if you put the, the number at ten thousand, this is the sort of revenue we expect to uh, to generate, or this is the amount of uh, money laundering we uh, expect to inhibit in some way. Versus, if you drop it down to two thousand, um, yeah, this is what we then expect. I mean, it might be the case that most people who are conducting illegal activities uh, handing over wads of cash in the two to five thousand uh, dollar range and. You know, in, in that instance, this bill would do very little. That, uh, that's the bit I'm trying to unpack. And no one uh, to date has provided an answer as to 
um, you know, where that benefit lies in return in, in respect of consolidated revenue and, and, and in relation to the, the, the point you've picked at $10,000? Very hard to actually get data on this, um, mainly because, as I said before, it's hidden. Um, so the task so, force... So, task would, it, would it be fair to say that if this were enacted, you would then also be in a position where you wouldn't be able to even measure the 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 effect of it. Um, I think that would be it would be difficult to do because we don't have a base we don't have a benchmark. I just want to go to this business of um, competition. So so you are saying that there have been submissions to the task force from employers saying that. Um, people using cash were undercutting them. I mean, do we know how many submissions? Do we know the, the level of that, or is it...? So the task force did um, community halls, community meetings, and that's where a majority of this came okay. from. So there's no sort of uh, statistical data? It's, it's anecdotal, is it? Um, it is anecdotal, and I think if you ask most people if they've been offered a lower price for cash, they potentially will say yes. Um, I've, spoken, I've been speaking to people in relation to, to this matter, um, some accountants who have said yes, they are aware of their clients complaining about that they find it harder to compete. And they know the reason for that. They're paying exactly the same input prices, they have to pay exactly the same wages, but they're being undercut by around 10%. And the reason for that is because the person doesn't want to pay the tax bill. When you tell me you do a couple of town halls and people complain about cash payments, I can understand that. But I don't think that's empirical evidence. I think it is. Because well, there's, how advice, is it? there's advice from one how many business people told you that? In, a, in an environment which they're How many people in. told you? 10? Well, it's a task force. I can't tell you. It's a 12? task force before my, before my time. So I'm, I'm, we're looking but, for some data. So some of what you just saw... The viewers have just seen, Craig, will be in the, the, the three-minute clip that we'll yep. put on Twitter, on Facebook, email, people getting around everywhere, and make your Member of Parliament watch it. Call them up and say, you've got to watch this video of your own parliamentary hearing to see them say, prove in their own words they don't have any evidence, right? Another clip I want to play, though, towards the end. I just, this is quite important because Treasury is then asked, uh, Gallica says, um, why is there a need for this bill? What's this clip? I'm not going to respond to it. So why have we got nearly 3,000 submissions to this uh, fairly... Uh, I think there's, a, there's some confusion bill. and probably legitimate confusion about what, what this is doing. Um, we have had people call us um, and a lot of the confusion is that they believe this is stopping them taking money out of the bank, that, it's a tr that the transaction is actually a withdrawal transaction and that's not the case. You'll be able to put in much money in the bank and take out as much money in the bank and store as much money in a private area as you wish. All it does is target transactions. Um, and once we've described that to people who phoned us, they've said, oh, okay, that's fine. Now, what you've just seen there is a lie. And here's the lie. The bill itself, the, part, the parts that the actual law bans all cash moves over $10,000, whether it's in and out of a bank or anything. It's these separate exemptions, a separate regulation that exempts those things, Right. And the point we've always made, Craig, is the bill can't be changed easily. The regulations can. Mm -hmm. And so in an emergency, if the government anticipates a bail-in, they could drop the, the exemption for withdrawals from banks, 
so that people can't withdraw more than $10,000 at a time. That's the bottom line here. People have to understand that. And so they are going out of their way to, to, to try and downplay this, but that's the power they're setting up. Do not believe them for a second. The question is, why might there be an emergency and the need for a bail-in that brings us home? We're going to take a break and talk about that after the break. Welcome back to the Citizens Report, where we're discussing three weeks to stop cash ban that traps Aussies in banks. And before the break, Craig, we talked about what might and what emergency might there be that would make the government want to do something like a bail-in and stop people withdrawing their money right. from banks. Plenty, plenty. Exactly. You, go through, you should go through one of them. Well, in the over the Christmas break, this figure has emerged that the if people have been paying attention, there's this repo crisis in America. There's an emergency underway right now as we speak, right? The repo crisis in America. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet has expanded by $413 billion in just 120 days, yep. right? That's how much they're frantically bailing out the banks there. I want to highlight something that happened here on the 17th of December, though, because the National Australia Bank held its AGM, and the former principal researcher of APRA, Dr. Wilson Sy, who we've had on this show, he asked a question about derivatives. And I can assure you, Craig, it's the first time probably in Australian banking AGM history that someone, an expert like him, has got up and asked such a question. Let me play the video. It's a five-minute video. I want you to see um, uh, Dr. Wilson Sy asking that. Because remember, in 2016, well, you can put a chart on the screen here, NAB stopped disclosing it, the full amount of its derivatives. It's called notional principle. They stopped disclosing that. And that's what Wilson Sy asked about. I would like to introduce Dr. Wilson Sy. Hello, I'm uh, Dr. Wilson Sy, the principal of investment analytic research. And I thank the board for give me, giving me an opportunity to ask a question. My interest as an investor is risk management, particularly in relation to derivatives, which the famous investor Warren Buffett called in 2003, financial weapons of mass destruction. Sure enough, derivatives play an essential part in the global financial crisis. Instead of reducing derivatives since the GFC in 2009, Australian banks led by NAB actually tripled the risk exposure to derivatives to nearly $40 trillion. For the audience not familiar with derivatives, it is the notion notional value or face value of the derivatives, not its market value, which determines risk. If you bought a million, if you bought a million dollar house with a hundred thousand dollar deposit, your exposure to the property market is not a hundred thousand dollars. It is a million dollars. In the, now I refer to the financial statement and reports, in the NAB 2019 annual financial report, note nine on trading instruments, there it disclosed the mark-to-market values of derivatives, assets, and liabilities. However, these numbers do not convey the information on the off-balance sheet risk on the bank. I have, to I have to research back to 2015 annual financial report, report in note 11 to discover that the notional value of derivatives was then $2.6 trillion 
with a T, not a B. That is, each dollar of assets or liability led to $50 of exposure to market risk, a 50 to 1 gearing. Now, without knowing the notional value of derivatives in 2019, it is impossible to know the current NAB off-balance sheet leverage and therefore the risk exposure to derivatives. So my question is, does the chairman of the Audit and Risk Committee, which I assume is uh, Mr. David Armstrong now, know offhand the notional value of NAB derivatives? And importantly, why is the critical information not provided since 2015? Thank you. <clears throat> I'll give uh, both the Chair of the Audit Committee and our Chief Financial Officer time to think the question through, but I would take issue with uh, one comment you made. Um, the use of derivatives in National Australia Bank is overwhelmingly dominated by interest rate derivatives, uh, which are denominated in the same currency. So if for the benefit of the audience, that might be a, a swap between a floating rate instrument and a fixed rate instrument both of which would be denominated in Australian dollars, for example, or indeed both in US dollars. To say that the exposure is the gross amount of US dollars is simply incorrect. The exposure is the difference between the floating rate and the fixed rate. So I, I do think that uh, while it might be helpful to see what the notional value is, I think itself could be also quite misleading for uh, interest rate derivatives in the same currency. But perhaps if I can ask... Um, I stand to be corrected, but uh, my recollection was that uh, when uh, international financial reporting standards came in, there was this concept of including the, uh, the notional value of derivatives. And over time, there was a recognition that that was actually quite a misleading number, uh, to some extent, for the reasons you've described, because it doesn't deal to what was the underlying risk that was being hedged. It doesn't deal to the collateral that may have been obtained against the market risk associated with the derivatives. And at the end of the day, uh, I, I believe that the accounting standards were changed to eliminate that risk, and I stand to be corrected on that. We, we think about the derivatives in the context of the purpose for which they're being used, the counterparties with whom we are trading those derivatives, and the collateral that is held against those derivatives for the potential market movements. And that's how that risk is managed. Now, Craig, I can tell you the answers that Wilson's side got are extraordinary because an expert, the, the, the public, general public won't know because derivatives are very complicated, but an expert would see through them and see the assumptions that are in them. Mm -hmm. One of the, mm -hmm. the most extraordinary one was a guy who said, but hang on, we're just adopt, following the new accounting standards. As if accounting standards are there to, um, uh, as world's best practice. No, no, the accounting profession is so corrupt. What the accounting standards have been for the last decades yeah. is more and more watering down of actual standards, yeah. right? So that is, it, to buy that is just, is just rubbish. Um, you saw it. How should NAB shareholders think about those answers? Well, they should be afraid, Robbie, very afraid. Look, the issue here is bank separation or Glass-Steagall. Now, we can't go into a great deal of this, but if people want to go to the link on the screen, they can find it on our website all about Glass-Steagall, which is basically separating out all this you know, toxic speculation like derivatives from the necessary banking system that we must have. Because a bank have. like NAB shouldn't have any Never. Members. No, any commercial bank has to be completely quarantined from this sort of behaviour. You know, all the vertical integration that's gone on. You've got to go back to what we call boring banking, Robbie. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's take a break.
Welcome back to the Citizens Report. Finally, Trump needs to talk to Putin and Xi, not neocons, to stop World War III. So, Craig, you um, addressed this in the show last week, mm -hmm. right? What happened Definitely. in Iran. Now, right now, as we speak, Iran might appear to have settled down a bit, the Iran situation. And I don't like calling the Iran situation, it's the US-Iran situation. It's not like it's Iran's fault or anything. Um, and, of course, you had the terrible plane crash as well, the, the shooting down of the plane, which Iran admit to, admitted to, and that's what happens. That's, that sort of tragedy can happen in a war um, uh, danger uh, that, that, that's, that's happened. But just because it might appear a little bit calm right now, any, num any, any flare-up can destabilise that. And the problem is you can have a, 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 um, a broader a regional conflict that draws in the great powers and becomes a global conflict, right? That's what we're concerned about. The neoconservatives that have been controlling British and American foreign policy for a long time, this is what they want, right? Um, now, here's the bit. Here's the point that we have to ram home. Donald Trump came to office promising the opposite of this, yeah. right? He came to office promising to end wars, and his illegal actions in killing this man, Soleimani, this general, fly in the face of that. Um, that said, <laughs> unfortunately, the whole time there was one exemption, there was one exception to his talking about anti-war. He hated Iran, right? Mm -hmm. he, Iran, he, he has a real prejudice against Iran. But that prejudice might have been able to be balanced if he'd been able to follow through on another thing he wanted to do, which is get better relations with Russia, right? Because um, Russia... Is a, and under Putin knows they have a, they're, they're, they're a much better presence in the Middle East, frankly, because um, they've stopped the, the regime change uh, that's happened in Syria and whatnot. Instead of being able to, you know, co cooperate with with uh, someone like Putin and take his advice on Iran, all he gets is what's coming from Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. Now, in our in the latest alert service, which people can call in and get a free copy of, we have a we have a very important article here: the West Point Mafia and the killing of Soleimani. And what this article goes through is this gang of pe people, five guys, sorry, six guys who all graduated West Point in 1987 or 88, mm. right? They're called the West Point Mafia and they've taken over the Trump administration on this. It includes Mike Pompeo. It includes the Defence Secretary, Mark Esper. It includes a bunch of other guys who you have to read the article about them. They're the ones that have been systematically um, painting Trump into a corner to do this kind of thing, Right. And the, the consequences are huge. So this week, we put out a, a press release backing a call by the International Schiller Institute for an emergency summit between Trump, Putin and Xi. Why is that so important? Because, Robbie, as you said, the impulse for Trump was to work with Putin and you've had these neocons come and shut that down. If you're going to have any sort of stability in that region, it has to be done through the major powers and through the collaboration of major powers. There's so many destabilising forces on the ground there, but only this sort of collaboration can can actually stop it. So Helga Zeppler-Rusch, the president of the Schiller, Schiller Institute, put this statement out calling for this summit of the, of the heads of uh, these governments in order to solve this crisis. And one of the factors that, that China can bring to the table is the transforming the Middle East through infrastructure development. And look, Iraq wants it. They, you know, the, the president of Iraq wants the, uh, wants the Belt and Road Initiative. And Iraq forms, the, as Sleman was going through last week, the crossroads of development for the entire region, for Africa, for, the, for that particular region as well. So look, this is incredibly important for the, the development of the peoples of that region and to finally get peace in that area. Yeah, and that's the important thing. You've got to find a way, an outside factor that can transform the whole thing because otherwise it can just escalate out of control. We've ran out of time. Thanks for tuning into this week's C Citizens Report. 
Look out for the three-minute video and get it to your Member of Parliament. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks for tuning in. Watch next week.